Hi, I'm Billy Shore. I got a sad message to bring to you today, and that is that the tragedy and terror of COVID-19 struck close to home for us upon learning that Chef Floyd Cardoz died of it in the New York area yesterday. Floyd was not only a great chef, but an incredible champion of Shower Strength's No Kid Hungry campaign. He was also a champion of so many other humanitarian causes in the United States and around the world, including his native country of India. All of us who knew him were just completely devastated. He leaves a lasting legacy, some of which you can hear about in his own words on a podcast that we recorded last year. We're resharing it as a tribute to Floyd and the goodness that he inspired in all of us. Thanks so much for listening. Hi, I'm Billy Shore. This is Add Passion and Stir. You're listening to our weekly conversation about food, about passion, and about making a difference. Uh, we always have somebody with us from the culinary community, somebody who's an advocate on social change, and we're always learning from both of them. Today is really a special podcast because we've got an international flavor to the food that we'll be talking about and an international flavor to the issues we'll be talking about. Floyd Cardoz from the Bombay Bread Bar, somebody I've known for a long time. Floyd, I wish we were doing this at the Bombay Bread Bar because I have heard so many good things about it, but you've been a a uh, hero and a champion to share our strength almost from our earliest days. So thank you so much for being here. No, thank you for having me. And I was just absolutely lucky to be in the right place at the right time to get to know the organization way back when at Tabla. Uh, and being that I grew up in India, know a little bit of a, uh, a little bit of a childhood hunger, even though I didn't experience it, but you could see it all around. Well, I, I want to talk about that because, you know, we've had chefs on uh, Add Passion and Stir, who have had restaurants, you know, maybe on the east side and the west side of New York or a couple blocks apart. You've got restaurants in New York and in Mumbai. <laughs> How do you do that? Uh, with a lot of travel. And tell us tell us about the restaurants. So I have I have, I have the Bombay Bread Bar in Soho that I opened earlier this year. It's It celebrates uh, Indian food that people don't normally eat in restaurants. So it's kind of like home-style adaptations of Indian expats who cook Indian food in the United States using local ingredients. And then I have the two in Bombay. One is uh, it's called the Bombay Canteen, which we opened four years ago. And that was to celebrate Indian food because I found that Indians were going away from Indian food. So we do things that people don't know in India, people people don't see in India, things from all over India, which is a huge country with a huge uh, diverse cuisines and calling it Indian cuisine is like calling it European cuisine because there's nothing like that. And then we have a second restaurant called Opedro, which is uh, which celebrates the food from my old state of Goa and, and Portugal. But most people don't realize that Portugal was a, uh, was a colonizer in India for over 300 years. I did not know that. People think it was a British, but it was right. Portugal, yeah. right. So I do these two things in India, just kind of celebrating Indian cuisine and here and trying to spread the good word about Indian food and how good it can be, not only because of how healthy it is, but how flavorful and interesting this whole cuisine is. And I guess one of the obvious questions is, how do you do both? How do you get back and forth? How do you divide your time? How do you make that work? I go to India four times a year. Okay. And one of the things I do is I, if I go, I go for between 10 and 12 days. And I make it a point to fly at a time where it's nighttime in U.S. In, in India, actually, when I leave, so I get up, I take a little bit of sleeping, I'd sleep on the flight. And when I get to India, it's evening, early evening, have dinner, go back to sleep. And on my way back, I do the same thing. I take a flight that's nighttime, which is leaving at nighttime in the U.S. So I get on the flight really tired, work the whole day, sleep, I get here in the morning, 
and be able to work. It's 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 become a routine for me now, and now with technology and you know FaceTime and WhatsApp and all these other applications you have, you can call people every day. I can see what's going on in the kitchens. I can talk to my chefs there. Uh, and we just got to make it work. If you want to make it work, you can make it work. Well, we've got uh, Carmen on the phone from Rome, Carmen Burbano with the World Food Program. Well, I am so excited that you're with us, Carmen, because I know that you've been 14 years with the World Food Program, which is an amazing organization that I'm going to have you describe a little bit, but I know that uh, it helps feed 90 million people in 80 countries and that your expertise is around malnutrition and food insecurity, and particularly in school feeding, which at Share Our Strength has been our number one uh, priority uh, in the United States, closing the gap that exists between kids who are eligible for meals like school breakfast and the number of kids, the much smaller number of kids who are actually getting them. So as we get into this, Carmen, tell me how you ended up with the World Food Program. It's an organization I've always admired. It sets the bar really high in terms of the humanitarian and compassionate work it does around the world. What led you there? Well, I was—I had always been attracted to working in the UN since I was about twelve years old. In in school, I I worked for the well, I I had the participant. Uh, I was a participant into the model UN program. Now, was this in Ecuador where in you grew Ecuador, up? In Ecuador, yes, in Quito. And so, uh, it it had always been an aspiration of mine to work in a in an international organization, but uh, a nonprofit organization that really focused on on making the world a better place. And I was lucky enough, I think, to to have had access to really great schools, fantastic education, a couple of parents that were very very supportive and valued education so much. And so I I decided very early on that my career was going to be about giving back. And so uh, when I was about 26 or 27, I applied to a very uh, innovative program at the World Food Program called the Young Professionals Program. They were looking for really young people coming from developing countries that could really engage and uh, and I got uh, I got a chance I got an opportunity to work for the World Food Program here in Rome and I haven't left ever since I, I fell in love with the organization and have made my career here. And uh, Carmen, were your mom and dad active in um, like community issues? Like where where if you if you look for where that seed got planted even farther back um, in Ecuador? What was going on in Ecuador? What was going on in your family that kind of pointed you in this direction? I come from a I've come from a family of of, uh, of civil servants I think and and people that uh, that have always valued uh, social service but also uh, social safety net social programs and and how countries are uh, put together in terms of support systems for the most vulnerable my my grandfather used to work for Ecuador's uh, emerging in the in the beginning of the the, the 20th century he he helped put together together with my grandmother Ecuador's social security system wow and uh, that's where you know I, I come from a family that has been very much engaged in in the national conversation as Ecuador has developed. And my mother then became a teacher. That was her career when we were growing up. She was a teacher at the same school that I went to. And my dad was an entrepreneur and a, and a, and a private sector person. He worked for IBM for, for many, many years. And they both 
they both valued education a lot. And so um, for, for me growing up, it was it was a household where we were we were taught the value of um, of, of giving back, of, of education, of, of getting engaged, the importance of uh, the social systems in a country and how that determined, I think, some of Ecuador's development. And then growing up, my uh, my dad's career started to take some more steam and, and we we uh, we got taken abroad with with his job. And so my mom had to give up her teaching career to to take care of us as a family as we were moving around. And so then she started her own interest and her own second career in food and became a sort of a caterer and and a teacher and in cook and 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 different things that had to do with food. So when I look back on that and look at my own career in the World Food Program, I have to say sort of education plus food plus uh, giving back and in a nonprofit sector was pretty much in my genes from the very beginning. Uh, so your mom was a uh, kind of caterer, cook, chef, uh, mix of all of those, but uh, had a culinary career. Yes, after being a teacher. Wow. Incredible. And did you feel any pull, you know, just given some of the needs in Ecuador and some of the poverty that exists there, um, did you have any, personally for you, was there any kind of tug of war about, I guess, to here in Ecuador and do this work or do it on a more global stage? I've always really been a... Uh, very curious about what was happening outside of Ecuador, but very much coming from a place where I was very conscious of the fact that I had a, a very fortunate position in having excellent education and coming from a family that gave me all the opportunities that I had. Uh, also, a, a very clear realization that I needed to do something with my career to to give back, and that I had a responsibility to do something with all of that education that was um, really honoring all of those children and people that did not have the fortune that I did. And so, while I, you know, I decided to to have an international career. Uh, for me, the roots have always been and continue to be in Ecuador, and um, and 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 how that is connected with, uh, you know, with my broader career, but also with um, with uh, with origins that are in a, in a developing country very much. And did you inherit your mom's cooking talent? I try, but we, but it's difficult. She's she's uh, she's an excellent, excellent cook. And for us, actually, it's interesting because we we don't really like to go out to eat at restaurants because my mother's food is always much better. And uh, she, well, she she does lots of lots of dishes. But I think two two of the, the things that she that she cooks is is quinoa. Um, this Andean grain that's it's also very, very nutritious. And uh, we have a, a wonderful Ecuadorian quinoa soup, which is actually one of my favorites. And my mother's quinoa soup is fantastic. Quinoa is a, is a cereal that is grown in the Andes. So it's very earthy in flavor and, and very rich. And uh, the soup that my mom makes, which is a traditional Ecuadorian soup, is actually very nice for the winter. And so in the States and in Europe at this point in the year, it's a fantastic soup. It's made out of potatoes and cheese, cheese, lots of cheese and, um, and, and the quinoa. And, uh, and it just makes into this fantastic sort of very thick uh, steamy soup.
Quinoa is all the rage here now. I was just in California, and on the menu of like 10 items on the menu, eight of them were had quinoa. Yeah, everybody's eating quinoa now. Yes. And there are so many other grains that you can eat. Your mom was ahead, your mom was ahead of the curve. Well, that was a staple when I was growing up. So, um, Floyd, tell us a little bit about, um, about the need in India that you get to see just from your vantage point uh, as an American and an Indian chef who go, kind of goes back and forth. Uh, Share Strength just started funding a program there that you may uh, probably do know, Carmen, better than I do, called Akshaya Patra. It's one of the largest uh, school feeding programs in the world. Uh, but, you know, I think so many of us who think about India and think about images we've seen on TV of poverty and need and so forth have this sense of uh, it being in a very dynamic um, place right now of a growing middle class kind of uh, economic boom, but still this tremendous poverty. What's the best way to understand India if you haven't been there? So in India is this is this country which has the very, very rich, and I had this question asked yesterday. He says, you know, are there a middle class in India? They must be the really rich and the really poor. The really rich form about 3% of the country. There is a middle class. And it's growing, isn't it? And it's growing. And there's various levels of the middle class. Like I grew up in the middle class, but we were comfortable. You know, we had food. We had my father did very well for himself, but we weren't rich. But there are people who work in offices who don't have that, you know, and real estate in India is, is crazy. It's really, really expensive. So you have those middle class, and then you have the poor uh, who live in the shanties around Bombay, around Delhi, and all over the country. And they are doing menial jobs, sometimes making maybe $10 a month, doing jobs and working for people and cleaning, you know, cleaning the homes and cleaning bathrooms. And they have kids, and sometimes there's not enough food for them to eat. So there is this vast, you know, the rich get richer, the poor get poorer, and the sad part is that all the all the poor people are the people who are going to the to these big cities, thinking that the streets are paved with gold, thinking that they'll all be in Bollywood, thinking they'll get a break and they'll make it big. And the numbers are massive, right? If you go to Mumbai, there there are so many people in that one city, and you could go from a beautiful high rise, and when you go up in a balcony and you look down and you'll see these shanties, it's like you know huge. It's like Brazil. It's like Rio. And, you know, most most people from the United States have been to, you know, been to Brazil and seen that. But in India, it's tremendous. Even though there's beautiful parts of India, there's a lot of stuff there is in India. There is a lot of people who don't have the money or don't have the means to improve their life. So it's, I'm, I'm glad that you're, you're, you are going to India now because that's been my my dream for years to get Shara Strength to do something in India because I think there is a need. Well, we want to not only do something in uh, India in terms of programmatically, but we'd also like to think about, can we bring any of the philanthropic strategies that w- that have succeeded for us in the United States to India and other places in the world? And I, I'd really be interested, uh, both Floyd and Carmen, uh, you know, in... Uh, I guess the kind of the signature strategy that we've had in the U.S. and the whole idea behind Share Our Strength is that uh, people want to make a difference. And if you can find ways that they can do that through what they do, through, they can literally share their strengths. So chefs like Floyd have cooked. And when you uh, think about 
uh, cooking at food and wine events or teaching uh, low-income families about uh, food and nutrition and, and, and grocery shopping and budgeting, uh, we've realized that chefs can make a tremendous impact. Is there, And we've had a lot of corporate partners as well. I'd say at the core of our model have been corporate partners related to the food industry. Is there an opportunity to do some of the things we've done in the U.S., in India, in Rome, in Peru, and some of the other places that we've been talking about? I can speak for India, and I think there is tremendous opportunity. Now, Indians believe in in giving to the gods, but not so much as giving to the community. So what we started in the Bombay Canteen was after when we opened, one of the things I told my partners, two of which who worked in the United States, uh, one with me at Northern Grill, I said, you know, one of the things I want to do is I want to involve the community in giving back and teaching people that it's okay to give back. So year one, of the restaurant's life, after after year one, we did something called like Independence Day Dawat. So on the 14th of August, uh, we invited all the people who worked as security guards in in the complex. Uh, they were, you know, valets and security guards and said, why don't you guys come in and eat with us for free? We will serve you. So that was year one. And if you want to pay, you can pay what you want. We'll give that money away for free. Year two, we did the same thing. And from year one, we must have made like maybe 50,000 rupees Year two, we made five lakhs rupees. Uh, this year, when we did it, we, we did it for a, a school. And it's become so big now that we've involved people. We've had the community come in and said, hey, why don't you give us recipes? People who people look up to and say, give us recipes. We'll cook your food. We'll serve it for free and let people donate whatever they want. We had so many people. We had to turn people away this year. And we raised 15 lakhs. One lakh is a hundred thousand rupees. A, a lakh is is a lot of money. You can eat in a restaurant for four hundred rupees. Uh, you could you could get a beer for forty rupees, fifty rupees. You could get a beer. Uh, you could buy fruit for three pieces of fruit for one hundred and twenty rupees. Uh, you could have a street side meal for one hundred and fifty rupees. So that's that's a translation of that money. So we gave that away, and we want to make this bigger because we see there is a need. There is a need to involve the community because the people do want to give, but they don't know how. And so you're really introducing kind of grassroots philanthropy into the community. And and we're, we're only going to choose, you know, things that mean something to us. Like this year it was kids, and we're going to look at education, we're going to look at food, feeding people, because I think that's where the need is. Hi, I'm Paul Woodhull, but you can call me Woody. I've been blessed with the opportunity to produce Add Passion and Stir over the past few years and to work with Billy, Debbie, and all of the great people at Share Strength on the No Kid Hungry campaign. Every podcast we produce provides me with insight and uplift in trying times. But in the three years that we've been producing Add Passion and Stir, there's never been a moment like the one we face right now. As I record this message, over 168 million meals have been missed just in the past two weeks by at-risk children who rely on free and reduced school lunch and breakfast. It's a frightening number that is overshadowed by the importance and consequence of the pandemic crisis. But the consequences of childhood hunger are just as dire, and the aftershocks to the millions of kids who are missing the meals they rely on schools to provide will reverberate through our country for years. But there is good news. The No Kid Hungry campaign is distributing millions of dollars in grants to the people and organizations on the front lines of childhood hunger, innovating solutions to make sure that all children are fed, even in the face of the coronavirus crisis. Please, go to nokidhungry.org 
That's nokidhungry.org to make a donation or to apply for a grant in your community. Even just $1 will provide 10 nutritious meals to hungry and at-risk kids. Please, help us help them. And share this podcast with your friends, neighbors, and communities so together we can end childhood hunger in America. Thank you. You know, Carmen, when we started Share Our Strength now 34 years ago, it was as a result of the famine. That was what it kind of sparked our uh, consciousness and conscience and made us want to do something, the Ethiopian famine in 1984. And uh, we thought our focus was going to be international grant making and international development work. And then in the mid-1980s, the United States had a whole series of kind of social needs and social reversals in terms of homelessness spiking up and hunger spiking up. So we got very focused on our work uh, in the U.S. and we're just in the process of building back our international grant making. So uh, our listeners, most of our listeners on Ad Passion Stir, although now about 10% of them are from outside the U.S., uh, but 90% of them are from the U.S. and uh, most of them are familiar with the work we do in the United States. What should we understand about the great work that the World Food Program does? I'm sure there's a range of activities, but for somebody that's new to the World Food Program, what should we know about their priorities and their programs? Well, the the World Food Program really exists to to help and be one of the one of the organizations that is uh, eliminating hunger worldwide, and it, it's a it's a big mandate, and it's a it's a very difficult and ambitious mandate. But we like to to say that it's also very achievable. It's actually one of the challenges that humankind is dealing with that is actually uh, quite uh, solvable if we if we could put all the pieces together. So. What do we do? We 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 do we focus on 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 two things. I would say, one is um, saving lives, and so in 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 contexts that uh, that are that are very complicated, uh, countries that are dealing with disasters, that are dealing with conflict, that are dealing with emergencies in many many different ways. Uh, one of the first things that happen in those emergencies is uh, lack of food and 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 people communities need to really have that access to food, especially the most vulnerable, the children, the pregnant, the lactating women and, and people in society uh, that is that are coping with these with these uh, disasters that, that really need to survive. So WFP is uh, the leading organization in responding to those disasters. It's the largest humanitarian organization in the world and the logistics leader of the humanitarian organizations as well. And so whenever there's an emergency, whenever there's a disaster, whenever lives are at risk, WFP is generally one of the first organizations on the ground providing that food, but also providing other types of support to make sure that people can withstand the disaster and and hopefully start to build back their own communities. And then in other contexts that are more stable, but no less complicated in terms of being able to provide the adequate nutrition and food that people need to be able to thrive and to be able to be active participants in the community, WFP really tries to, through its support to different countries, change those lives for the better. And so we implement programs such as school feeding, which is what I what I direct and what I specialize in, which is making sure that children in the countries that we support are getting the nutrition they need so they can learn and stay in school. 
but we also have nutrition support. How do we uh, prevent malnutrition from even happening in the first place? So WFP is very much engaged in the prevention of malnutrition, especially for children that are under five years of age, but also women that are pregnant or, or that just gave birth. And this is very, very important to make sure that we're giving children the best start possible in their life and attacking this cycle of poverty that then comes if, if these issues are not addressed. And then we also focus on communities and how are they producing their own food? Um, what are the farmers doing to be better connected to markets and how WFP can support them in that? Uh, we do a lot of work with smallholder farmers all around the world. A lot of them are women to uh, increase their, their access to information, to credit, to markets, to storage, so that we start to lower little by little the amount of food that's wasted, the amount of uh, production that doesn't get to the market or that doesn't get uh, the the, in the the farmers don't get the income that they that they could if they had better access to, to all of these things. And um, we also work also with communities to support them so that in the next problem and the next disaster, when the next drought hits or the next flood, how can they prevent um, uh, further deterioration of their condition? So we like to talk about that as a resilience activities. How do we make sure that these communities have water facilities or building dams where they're supposed to so that the floods don't affect them as much as they should have last time, etc.? So really about safety nets and how do we build around these communities better systems to protect them from shocks. Carmen, what might be a good example of a community that you've worked in or a good example of the, the change or the transformation that you've seen, whether it came as a result of building a dam or supporting uh, the local farmers? Can you give us a, almost like a picture of how a, uh, a community or an area or a geography changed as a result of some of the World Food Program uh, work? Well, it's, it's difficult to actually come up with one example. We have, we have many, many examples in, uh, of, of, of communities that have now, you know, been, been, been stronger thanks to our work. My, my most recent experience before coming back to Rome to WFP headquarters to take on the leadership of the school feeding division was in Peru. And I, uh, I had a, I had a, a wonderful experience of two years of working in, in, in the country where WFP was supporting the government to attack very high malnutrition rates and especially anemia rates in children. In some parts of Peru, uh, about 80% of the children under three years of age have anemia. And this is affecting... Yeah, and are these in rural rural areas? Uh, the eighty percent figure is in hard to reach areas, but nationwide yep. the figure is very mm -hmm. high. It's around forty six percent. Wow! And so anemia is a problem in Peru in general, which is why the government uh, was very worried and very concerned about this issue because they were uh, conscious of the fact that if they didn't attack this problem. Uh, it, it was going to be uh, an issue moving forward for the development of the of the country. So WFP started working in a in a community north of Lima, and one of the things that we started to see was that uh, mothers needed more information. They needed better education in terms of 
what types of food to to buy, how to cook the food for children, what are the needs of of, of the children as they start to grow up, and what does a baby need in comparison with uh, what does a three year old need, and what does a school child need, and how do you uh, prevent them from getting anemia? But if they get anemia, how do you cure them from that, and the importance of going to the doctor and getting the type of support that mothers need? So we. We started uh, working with about a thousand households about three, four years ago, with the support of the private sector, um, in in a really interesting way of just working with the community through um, through different networks of of mothers that could be trained and then sent out to uh, to pass on the same messages to other families, and that started to work out very well. Uh, the anemia rates now, uh, according to their latest surveys, have gone down by sixty to eighty percent in some of the communities that WFP was working. So we decided with the government that we needed to scale this up and and bring this to many, many more people. But we thought we can't really do this by a community-to-community approach. I mean, we we need to do that, but we need a, a way to speak to the population in a massive way. So we teamed up with the chefs in Peru and the uh, sort of huge gastronomic community that is there and um, put together uh, a TV show around uh, better eating habits and cooking habits and how to fight anemia through uh, the culinary and gastronomic traditions of Peru. And the show aired for the first time last year in uh, national TV in, in Peru, in Channel 7, and is is now, we, uh, has a has a daily episode every every week, every day of the week um, since this year, and has been incredibly successful in trying to get the messages out there in terms of how to prevent anemia and how to cure anemia in children. And what's the show called? Cocina con Causa, Cooking with a Cause. Cooking with a Cause. I love that. Uh, and so say a little bit more about anemia. I always think of it uh, as a layperson, as uh, you know, something that makes you weak, that is kind of depleting of your of your energy. Is it related to an iron deficiency? Is, is It's probably more complicated than I've just described in terms of the, uh, the debilitating impact on young children. What else should we know about anemia? Yes. So the, the, uh, the, 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 major, the major cause of, I mean, um, of anemia cases in, in, most, uh, in most cases is, is the deficiency of iron in the blood. And this can be caused by many, many factors. But in developing countries and in poor communities, it's basically because the diets uh, of children and of families are poor in iron-rich foods like like red meats, like um, um, uh, like protein uh, foods, etc. And so it's really about what people are eating but also their habits and their hygiene habits and their cooking habits, et cetera. In many communities that we, that we work with, we, we see a lot of um, beliefs and taboos about what children need and what they should eat. And it's a lot about working with the mothers, the grandmothers, and the family, uh, the caretakers of children, to make sure that they, that they know what children need at different parts of different stages of their life and what they can, what they can, um, what they can absorb. The consequences of anemia are are terrible because, especially if you have anemia when you're when you're a baby, when you're very small, it means that your 
your brain isn't getting the nutrients and the oxygen that it needs to develop and to make the connections that it needs later on in life to be able to function. So we're talking about uh, damages to 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 all aspects of life, uh, behavior, cognitive damages, but also emotional um, issues that that uh, that don't get developed in the brain early on, and then um, children have a, a problem, for example, in school, understanding and learning and other types of things that come up later in life. When you said solvable problem, this really is solvable by getting kids the, the, the nutrition and the, um, the, the resources that they need. Uh, Floyd, one of the things I think you've experienced and we've seen over and over again is chefs have a voice, right? They not only can cook, which is important, uh, they can not only be business leaders, but they have a voice they're listened to. They have a platform. You've obviously, from what you just described, you were doing in India, have been trying to use your voice there as well. But talk about some of the ways that you think about balancing uh, your role as a chef and your role as a community leader. You know, I, I think both the roles are, are tied together because you, you can't just say I'm a chef and not care about the community. And one of the things that I've, I've found over the years, and this is, you know, in, in India, is, is Indians loved imports. And I think if you contribute what, what the U.S. did 25, 30 years ago by the chef saying, okay, we're going to cook local seasonal uh things that our farmers grow and not use imports, that changed the way the food was grown in the country. Now, if you, if you go to import everything, uh, it's going to make food expensive and people can't afford it. But if you're going to grow things or celebrate ingredients that grow off the land, in that land, and do really well, then it makes it cool. Like if I as a chef say, this is cool to eat this ingredient because it's from here and I'm only going to use this ingredient and if there are bycatch or if there's a green that is grown only in the monsoon or is grown only in this in this particular time, I'm going to help the community, I'm going to teach them how to fish rather than feed them fish and I think we have to look at it in, in, in that way as, as chefs is like how do we teach people that Everything they eat is cool, and it's not only the asparagus from the United States or the strawberries from France or, or whatever it is that we are importing into India or wherever it is in the world. And once we show them that you can use the grain, like if you use millets in India, millets are cool to eat. You don't need to get quinoa from South America where it's grown, and you can eat things in your own country and try making those things cool because then they start setting a message so it helps people earn money who are growing them, and then they can use that money to you know, continue growing the stuff and just kind of grassroots kind of make it into a big ball that's rolling downhill and, and just collecting things as it goes and makes it cool. It, it's not easy, trust me, because I know what we did in India was like people say, oh, you can't do this and you can't cook with this and you won't be able to get this. But I've seen what we've done in the United States. I've seen how we've succeeded. I've seen the small farmers who are growing things that they want to grow and that grow well in that land. Getting a way to get money on that table, getting a way to get more seed, getting a way to fish, say, with the bycatch, instead of just only going for tuna, and being able to sustain themselves. I guess if we sustain the community, we sustain the food source. If we sustain the food source, food gets cheaper. Food gets cheaper, more people eat. And as a chef, you have to show that. Carmen, that sounds very much like some of the philosophy that you said was baked into the, the work of 
the World Food Program. I loved your example of the cooking show in Peru. Are there other places you can be using chefs or the ways that we can be helping you in that regard? Well, what is interesting from what Floyd was saying is this connection between smallholder farmers, what's produced locally, and the demand and building a demand for that food that can really create new markets and and in turn drive up production. So we've applied that uh, to school feeding in many countries, especially in Africa, but but in other countries it's called homegrown school feeding. And it's really a little bit of, of the theory that, that Floyd just just, just, just uh, explained in, in a very large scale. Because if you look at how much food and how much uh, sort of quantities, tons of food, a school feeding program demands uh, because of how many children are eating every day at school, you are looking at an enormous demand of food every day from markets. And so um, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, WFP came together with partners like the Gates Foundation and others and said, what if we use the demand that is that, that the school feeding program uh, represents and connect that to smallholder farmer markets? And what if we could do that and increase their incomes, but also strengthen their communities and their own production practices and, and strengthen their connection to markets broadly? So this homegrown school feeding program idea has, has, has taken off spectacularly in many countries. In Brazil, for example, 30% of the food that is procured by the school feeding program has to come from smallholder farmers. And this has generated income and, and livelihood opportunities for millions and millions of farmers lots of them women, lots of them heads of household, and um, generated sort of a virtual cycle between a program that is supposed to be focusing on education of kids, but also uh, giving back that investment into the community in the form of increased investment. And so the voice and the, the role that I think opinion makers, leaders, influencers like like chefs is really important. The, the, the work, for example, that has been done in the UK by Jamie Oliver and his attention to uh, to how to why it's important that children are eating healthy foods in school is is really important. And we need those voices more and more in countries where if we connect local procurement, local purchase of food, kids are automatically going to be getting more nutritious, fresher, less processed, less unhealthy foods into their diets. And so really, I think what what we're looking at is a movement towards localizing those supply chains, localizing those food systems, and chefs as a very important influence in how people choose to eat what they eat and how they cook. You know, the old administration uh, in the U.S. had a program called Culinary Diplomacy. Right. There were like culinary ambassadors, right? Yeah. And, and I actually did two uh, in India, went to Hyderabad. and With with other chefs? No, I was alone because I was the only Indian chef. But I, I got the opportunity to talk to young people who who had no idea about food. There were some in orphanages and some were just from schools. But teaching them that they could eat and they could get into a career with food but I think making that cool and having a voice when you, you get a chef who I had a restaurant in New York and Bombay and it made it cool for me to be there. But these kids were listening and grabbing onto everything I said. And they even thought that, you know, most of them didn't know that it was an opportunity for them, uh, you know, and teach them to cook simple things and eat simple things. And it doesn't have to be fancy. But the reaction I got from this one set of kids from an orphanage where they were from age six to 17 uh, was incredible because 
they knew food, they loved food, but they couldn't get enough of food. And then I was showing them how they could help in making and feeding themselves. So that was that was actually pretty cool. And I wish we could do more of that yeah. all over the world where chefs go in whichever country in the world that needs the help and teach people that it's easy to cook food and eat food and have fun with it. Yeah, no, I just wanted to say that one the one thing is is very important in 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 remembering that in many of the countries as uh, that that we're talking about uh, obesity and overweight among school children is is going up and 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 it's really preoccupying in some of the countries where we're looking at poverty and we're looking at malnutrition figures we're also looking at a simultaneous problem of children really getting into school and being overweight and and later on being obese and so really important uh, this issue about teaching children teaching families how to eat better better eating habits better uh, and healthier lifestyles and and I think that's also where chefs have a very very important role to play um, to prevent these 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 phenomenons like like childhood obesity from happening and that's not just a problem of the US it's it's a problem that is that is engulfing I think most of a lot of the developing world as well and and the obesity issue certainly is an issue here in the U.S. as well, and and we think of it very much as kind of the uh, you know the other side of the same coin. Families that don't have the necessarily the information or the resources they need to make the healthiest choices for their for their whole family. Um, so I'm 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 actually glad you brought obesity uh, into this conversation. Uh, this has been a rare opportunity to uh, have international experts on Add Passion and Stir. We want to keep this conversation going, uh, but we also want to keep it at a manageable length. So we are going to have a part two to this special episode with Carmen Burbano and Floyd Cardoz. Make sure and listen in next week for part two of this Add Passion and Stir podcast. Also, as always, please not only listen, but subscribe, rate, review, Uh, Get engaged with Add Passion and Stir. Make sure your friends know about it. Make sure you leave comments for us. We really value your input. Add Passion and Stir is distributed by District Productive. Our executive producer is Peter Ogburn. Add Passion and Stir is the creation of Billy Shore, Debbie Shore, and Paul Woody Woodhull.